Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Ever since the 17th century, when philosopher Rene Descartes famously uttered the words, I think, therefore I am, we humans have largely disregarded our feelings and emotions as being reliable sources of information. A great deal of Western literature and philosophy has since imbued us with the belief that emotions are a kind of internal interference that gets in the way of sound judgment and rational thought. So it's no coincidence that we continue to think of our intelligence and emotions as coming from two separate parts of our body, one from our head and the other from the heart. Until the 1980s, most psychologists were still convinced that feelings only slowed us down and got in the way of our success. But then came along Peter Solovey and John Mayer, who introduced the first formal theory of emotional intelligence and the rather contradictory assertion that the majority of human behavior is actually motivated by feelings and emotions, whether we're aware of it or not. Solovey, by the way, is now president of Yale University, which just so happens to be the same school where today's podcast guest, Mark Brackett, is a professor, not to mention the director of its Center for Emotional Intelligence. I'm excited to have Mark join us today because his own research and compelling work provides phenomenal confirmation for two of the foundational ideas behind the lead from the heart philosophy. The understanding that feelings and emotions drive human behavior and therefore employee workplace performance and the belief that when people routinely experience positive emotions at work, they're naturally and reflexively influenced to be more engaged, creative, committed, and productive. Mark's new book, Permission to Feel, Unlocking the Power of Emotions to Help Our Kids, Ourselves, and Our Society Thrive, debuted this week at number three on the New York Times bestseller list. And in it, he asserts that emotions are the most powerful force inside the workplace as they are in every endeavor. And to quote Stanford's Carol Dweck in her review of Permission to Feel, she wrote, we often create a false dichotomy between thinking and feeling. In this dichotomy, thinking is important, strong, and adaptive, but feeling is not. Mark Brackett shows us how emotions and our ability to feel, understand, and use them are key to fulfilling our potential. I'm very much convinced that most workplace leaders still greatly underestimate how much feelings and emotions shape human behavior. One reason we've been very slow to change our management practices and restore employee engagement all around the world. And so it's through this discussion with Mark Brackett that I now hope to change many minds and hearts. And with that, I would like to welcome you to the podcast, Mark Brackett. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, Mark. (laughs) Well, thank you. We're doing this very late at night for you, and I'm excited that you're here. And I want to get right into your book. And very early in it, Mark, you write that, and I'll quote you, our emotions are a big part, maybe the biggest part of what makes us human. And yet we go through life trying hard to pretend otherwise. We've learned to suppress even the most urgent messages from deep inside our beings. So let's start there. How do we come to believe that emotions are the enemy of the people? And I'll add, this belief is especially widespread in business where we still believe that reason and cognition are our higher powers and the head must always dominate the heart. So let's start there. You know, I think this is a historical question. For example, in psychology, I'll just say to the late 1800s, emotions were seen as noise. They were the error in research because they were not objective like behavior. We haven't really become able to measure emotional intelligence, as I said, of skills as well as we'd like to. 
Whereas for cognition, by way of example, we've got IQ tests, you know, and they predict things. Mm -hmm. So I think, A, it's this idea that emotions were not measurable. They were kind of noise or error. I think B is something deeper, which is that oftentimes we see emotions as being weak. There's sayings like, rule your feelings or they'll rule you, which is the opposite of emotional intelligence. We're saying, no, emotions are information. And when used wisely, they help you to achieve all your goals. But historically, emotions were seen mostly as weak. So let me take a step back and ask the question I probably should have started with, which is, what made you an expert in emotions? <laughs> what drove this study? What motivated you to devote your life's work to this? Yeah, well, I had a difficult childhood, as I write about in my book. I had abuse in my childhood. I was bullied quite badly as a kid. And by way of example, the abuser basically threatened me not to say what was happening. So I had to hold all this trauma inside of me. I had two loving parents, but both of them had their own issues because they never had training in emotional intelligence. And so my mom was very anxious. She would get nervous all the time and say things like, you know, oh my goodness, I can't believe that's happening. What's bullying? And don't worry, your mother loves you. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to be helpful. And then my father was a very strong, tough guy. And so his response was, son, toughen up, toughen up. It's funny, I now have a fifth degree black belt and I say still that I'm not a tough guy. So my point in sharing these anecdotes is that I grew up in a family and had situations in my life where I did not have the permission to feel. I didn't have the opportunity to really learn how I was feeling. I didn't have the opportunity to talk about my emotions. And guess what happens? Bad things happen from drug use to self-hatred to eating disorders. The list goes on because our emotions have to go somewhere. You asked, like, really, my inspiration came from the fact that I had an uncle who happened to be a teacher and also a musician. And as fascinating as it may sound, he was building a program to teach kids about emotions through history back in the 1980s. And he was the one adult in my life who asked me that simple yet profound question, which was, how are you feeling? And what he did that was different from everybody else was he paused, he listened, he didn't judge. And then when I told him all the horrific things that I was experiencing, he didn't say, well, son, you know, get some grit, get some self-control, you know, figure it out, toughen up. He said, what do you need? What can I do to support you? Uh, this is uh, sort of, you know, as I, and I know the story, obviously. And if you don't mind my saying, just so that the audience knows, because I have read your book, this is sexual abuse that you were also experiencing as a child. So these are some profound hurts, if you will. And I wonder now, looking back, in, you're at Yale University, you're running this entire center on emotional intelligence for the university. Do you see, like, were you born with this as a purpose, do you see? How do you put the pieces together in your life that add up to you being where you are right now? Yeah, well, I want to say one thing, because I think a lot of people can't maybe relate to my abuse situation, that it doesn't have to be abuse that makes you feel like you're the only one who knows how you're feeling. <laughs> you know, there are people who grew up in households where they just don't talk about emotions. They get swiped under the rug, or they're just in households where there's lots of anger and lots of anxiety. So I think we all have our experiences, but most of us grew up in families where emotions were not really talked about or labeled effectively or managed with you know helpful strategies. 
I get asked that a lot. Well, Mark, you've made it. You're, you know, you're a professor at Yale. And I say, I am fortunate that I made it. I had an uncle who was my hero. My parents they couldn't really help me, but they did get me to see a therapist. I got involved in the martial arts for 25 years of my life. I mean, I became a fifth degree black belt. It was a big part of my life and learning how to focus and how to have self-esteem. I majored in psychology. I got a doctor in emotional intelligence and I've been writing curriculum for 20 years for people from preschoolers to CEOs of companies. So point being is I've spent a lot of time thinking about and helping myself and then obviously translating that for people across the world. So my point really is that I've dedicated my life to this. I don't think everybody's going to do that. You know, I don't think everybody's going to spend as much time as I have on this. And so my hope is that my book and our center's work can really give people the strategies and the tools and the skills that they need to understand their emotions and to use them wisely. Okay, very well said, and thank you. I think you put the pieces together very well. And I, I think the clear point that you made is that we're all pretty much in this, even if we didn't have quite the experience of abuse that you had. And I think that's a very thoughtful way to set this up. I want to go back to something that I read, which sort of stunned me in your book, which is that until the 1980s, most psychologists still viewed emotions, as you said, noise extraneous noise, useless static, I think you wrote in the book. It was believed then, and many still believe it today, that our feelings slow us down and they get in the way of us achieving our goals. And so give us the big picture. What's been discovered about feelings and emotions in the last 30 years and how specifically they influence our choices and decisions that we make every day? We say in our center that emotions are information, they're data, and they're useful data. All emotions, by the way, not just the positive ones that like people like to talk about. Every emotion is a source of information. My anger is about my feelings of injustice. My disappointment is about my expectations. My sense of serenity is about I feel complete. My feelings of happiness are about achieving my goals. But the way we like to think about it is that emotions have to be used wisely some people talk about anger as a destructive emotion. Well, I disagree with that adamantly because it's my anger at our education system that motivates me to get up every day and do more research and to talk to more policymakers about making a difference in education. So the point in the larger kind of space of research is that emotions are the drivers of our attention, our memory and learning. Think about it, how you feel right now engaging with me, Mark, is driving your engagement. If you're bored, you're already thinking about the next person you're going to be interviewing. If you're engaged, you're with me, you're here with me right now. The second is decision-making. And this is a big one in the workplace because everyone thinks that they're rational beings. But we know for sure that emotions are the drivers of much of the way we decide about things. Best example I have is my own research with teachers. I did a study where I randomly assigned teachers to be in a good mood or a bad mood. And then what our team did was we asked them all to grade the exact same essay. And the question is, do you think that the teachers in the good mood versus the bad mood assign different grades? So I'm going to ask you that. What do you think? I'm going to assume they do, yes. Exactly. I mean, now that you know I'm an emotion scientist, so I'm... I'm it's a setup, I think. Everybody listening could probably guess, but, but you're going to have to tell us why. Well, here's what's interesting. There was one to two full grades difference just based on a simple mood induction. Think about a good day. 
think about a bad day, and then grade the essay. But here's the hard part. At the end of the research, we asked these teachers, do you believe that how you feel had any influence over the way you evaluated that essay? And 87% of the teachers said, absolutely not. There's no way that how I felt would have influenced how I evaluated the essay. So what that tells us is that how we feel each day is a bias. It's biasing the way we evaluate things, and that's happening outside of conscious awareness. But here's the good news. There is an antidote. Do you want to guess what the antidote is? No. <laughs> I already know what it is. You go ahead and tell me. It's just self-awareness. It's actually labeling your feelings. So it's saying, you know what? Wow, writing about a bad day really put me in a, a bad mood. Once you attribute your emotion to its cause, what research shows is that it no longer has that unconscious influence over future outcomes. Well, let me ask you a question before you go too much further here, because we're going to get into the labeling here in a moment. But I want to ask you, why are we so resistant? So these teachers were given a strategy. You're going to be in a happy mood. The other people are going to be in an unhappy mood. And neither one of them could accept that their mood alone, their state of mind, had any influence over their choices. And I think that's really what we all feel. So it's not just teachers. And I need to know why. Why are we so resistant? Because think about that. That says that we have an unconscious bias. That says that we have no free will. Like no one wants to believe that about themselves. It's that simple. Wow. Okay. So throughout your book, you ask the reader, like almost every chapter, I think you began with it. Mm -hmm. How are you feeling today? And you've discovered that while there are literally hundreds of words that we can use to describe our feelings, I tried this out today on a friend of mine. I go, how are you today? And he goes, fine. <laughs> and that's what you said. Is yep. Fine or busy or stressed out, I guess, you know, but that's the menu, you know, A, B or C. And so what are ways that we can all become better at labeling our emotions since you set this up a second ago and cultivate the wide vocabulary that you've just demonstrated? Yeah, I think I want to just throw something in here, which is people have asked me, you know, why is your book called Permission to Feel? And why don't you write a book called Emotional Intelligence? And I said, because there's 500 books on emotional intelligence now. Mm -hmm. And yet, when I ask people while I run around the world how you're feeling, they can't tell me how they're feeling. <laughs> so while we have all this information about emotional intelligence out there and people see it as an important skill, nobody's actually developing it. So this vocabulary piece, we have a tool that we call the Mood Meter. It was developed by my colleague David Caruso and myself. And the Mood Meter helps us build awareness around emotions. And it's based on a theory called the circumplex model of emotion. Put simply, it's a four quadrants. And the yellow is about feeling high energy, pleasant emotions. And the green is about pleasant emotions that are low in energy. And the red and the blue are the unpleasant ones that are high or low in energy. And essentially, what this tool does is it helps us to take a pause and say, okay, am I feeling pleasant or am I unpleasant? Is my energy high or is my energy low? And then when you consider the physiological aspect of your state and the cognitive aspect of your state or the appraisal of the situation, you fall basically in one of these four quadrants. And then what we say is, okay, you go from the color, I'm, I'm feeling yellow, high energy, pleasant. All right, why are you feeling that way? What happened? Oh, I'm doing an interview with this great guy, Mark. Oh, boom, I'm excited. Oh, I just found out someone's very ill in my family. Oh, I'm feeling sad. Oh, someone just made fun of me. I'm angry. So we find that 
labeling our emotions comes out of paying attention to what's happening in our minds and bodies and then considering where that feeling is coming from. I have it out in front of me. Obviously, the audience can't see it, but this was something that I think you just have to read the book to see it. What I really loved about it and love about it in the present tense is just how many different words there are to describe how we're feeling. So that yellow quadrant, that high energy, high pleasantness is words like lively and happy and proud and thrilled. And then in the red, you know, it's this very unpleasant and very high energy words like frightened or angry or nervous, restless. And this is very powerful for people to understand because you go from saying, well, I'm fine or I'm stressed or I'm rushed, something that just is very non-descriptive to something that's inherently extremely descriptive. So when you teach this to people, are they capable of remembering where they are in these four quadrants, or is that even important? It is important, because as we say in the field, you have to name it to tame it. And so within even the anger family, like the red is anger, but there's so many variations and shades of red. So am I peeved? Am I irritated? Am I angry? Or am I enraged? And the blue, am I down? Am I disappointed? Am I devastated? Or am I hopeless? And even the happy, am I feeling pleased, content, happy, or ecstatic? And it sounds overly simplistic, but having that granularity is critically important to helping us figure out what to do with our feelings. And also, it's really in those red and blue quadrants, it's a lot easier to manage the smaller emotions. When you're feeling down, talk to a friend. Once you're hopeless, it's a lot more work. When I'm peeved, you know, I can take a breath. But when I'm enraged, it's a lot harder to regulate. Wonderful. You mentioned that much of your work is teaching educators and school superintendents, school boards, and so forth. You're teaching them to teach students emotional expression and also how to recognize emotions in themselves so that they can have better relationships with people, the emotional intelligence part. And so because you seem so focused on education, I want to ask you, how does this apply to workplace leadership? Everything that you've learned, everything that you're teaching, tell us how it translates. And if the answer is yes, that it clearly translates into how we manage and also the engagement of people, Tell us why mastering these skills is really essential to our overall effectiveness, both, I suppose, as an employee, but ultimately as a leader. Well, what's happened over the last couple of years is that we've gotten so much interest in our work from companies, from Facebook to trucking companies to hospitals to financial firms that we actually have a new company called OG Life Lab. It's OJI Life Lab. And we have translated all of the science of emotional intelligence, all the tools that we built for schools for people in the workplace. So actually, we've been there now, and we're doing important work in that space. And you know, the funny thing is, and you know, I'm a little hesitant to say this, but the principal of the school is a leader, just like the manager in Facebook or in Goldman Sachs. They have people who report to them, and those people who report to them have feelings. And those feelings are driving those employees' engagement and burnout and intentions to lead the profession and job satisfaction and sense of inspiration every single day. 
And actually what we found in our most recent study is that managers and leaders with more developed emotional intelligence have employees who are healthier, happier, and more effective. So these skills transfer into all contexts. And I think in the workplace, what's interesting is in my work from hospitals to financial companies, you know, we'll give you one example. This one major CEO, I can't say his name, he said to me, you know, Mark, this is interesting stuff. And, you know, I don't think I need the training, though, because look at me, like, look at my position. Mm-hmm. And he goes, but maybe I'll bring you in to train the people who work for me, because then they'll be better able to deal with me. You know, I was thinking to myself, like, <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, interesting thing is I interviewed someone who worked for him, a high-level executive, a woman. She was in that conversation, and she said, please don't repeat this to anybody, which it's all confidential here now anyway. Of course, it's just the two of us. Anonymous, anyway. She said, you know what he told me? He said to me a while back, he goes, you know, let's think about it. Nobody really cares how you feel, because the only thing that matters is that you represent the company. I mean, when you think about what that means for that person, how demoralizing that is, and how she must have felt when she heard that, my question to people who are listening is, if that were you, how much effort are you really going to put into your work each day? You know, Are you going to go that extra you know, mile to support your leader? Or are you spending time on Facebook at work and LinkedIn looking for another job? Is this a consciousness issue? Like this CEO, is he just like low consciousness? What's the, I mean, seriously, because I think he's emblematic of a lot of different managers out there. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's emblematic of the point, which is that we have not provided people an adequate education in emotions. So he's clueless, basically, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe a little narcissistic, too, Mm -hmm. Well, which is not a great thing, you know, for leadership. We know that's characteristic of CEOs in many respects. So, you know, science proves that. Yeah. Well, my theory is that I think that is a wave of the past, at least from my exposure. You know, people have less tolerance for these narcissists and these bullies because we're in a good job market and people, if they feel disrespected, demoralized, not valued, etc., like, why would I want to work here? Like, why would I want to be miserable each day? Well, I'll shift into that and say that, you know, we know for like the last 13, 14 months, at least in America, and we've got, you know, this is clearly true of other countries, but I'm specifically citing the American stats, which show that the number of people that have quit their jobs month to month over the last 14, 15 months is at record levels. It's near 3% of the workforce every month. So it's like two and a half, 2.6, 2.7 million people. And actually, I get a lot of glee out of that, to be honest with you, because it kind of validates what you just said, which is people are waking up and saying, this is my life, and I just can't work for anybody like this. At the same time, I still think that there's resistance to this, which is the whole reason I was so excited to have you on. And so what's your big argument for take a look at yourself here? not just take a look at others. Don't apply this to the other people, but take a look at how you can master this because it's really critical to your leadership career. Well, you know, leaders have to be obviously in a good place themselves, but I think the best leaders are focused on making sure they understand how other people feel and making sure that they're creating a positive culture and climate for the people that work for them. And it starts with you. If I, as a director of a center, don't care about how the people feel in my workplace, 
things are just going to go downhill. If I'm not concerned about, like I always say, what keeps me up at night is rarely the competence of anyone who works at our center. We have really smart people who work for us. What I think about is when this person comes in, how do they feel you know, when they report to me? How do they feel on their team? Because I know from my research that how they feel is driving so much of their success. And obviously that cumulatively affects the success of our center and our work. So I still go with the fact that, yes, we have to put our mask on and take care of ourselves first. But in a leadership position, we have to quickly be thinking about other people. I mean, that's just a profound validation for what this entire podcast is. So thank you very much for that. You said something a few minutes ago that feelings are a form of information and that by understanding this information, we can all make our most informed decisions. So I want to get into your methodology. Sure. And you call this the five skills of being an emotional scientist, which sounds much more complicated than it is. It's actually rather simple, straightforward, and brilliant all at the same time. So I'm just going to turn it over to you and ask if you can give an overview of what you call your ruler process. Of course. So the way I think about emotional intelligence is there are these skills. And I should say that I was very lucky to be trained by the two theorists who founded the concept of emotional intelligence, Peter Salovey, who's now the president of Yale, and Jack Mayer, who is a professor at the University of New Hampshire. So RULER is an outgrowth of their theoretical model. And R stands for recognizing emotions in oneself and others really paying attention to what's happening in our brains and bodies, really paying attention to what people are expressing in terms of their facial expressions, body language, vocal tones, touch. The second is understanding emotions, knowing where my feelings are coming from, understanding that anger is about injustice and disappointment is about unmet expectations and fear is about danger and anxiety is about uncertainty. There's a lot to learn about emotion. Labeling it is getting precise. If I'm in the anxious state, well, am I anxious? Am I worried? Am I overwhelmed? Am I panicked? Because there's differences between these different emotions. So we call those first three skills, the R, the U, and the L. Those are the skills that help us make meaning out of our own and other people's emotions. Then the big question is, what do I do with this information? Am I in a workplace that I can express my feelings? Am I in a home where I can express my feelings? And there are rules around that. We know that power influences whether or not people express their emotions. We know that gender influences whether or not people express their emotions. We know that race affects these expressions. So that's important for us to understand. There's an equity issue in terms of who has the privilege to express their feelings in a workplace in particular. Right, The big boss can slam their hand down and say, get the blank out of here. And for some people, that would be acceptable, right? If the subordinate comes in and does that, they get fired. And then the final is regulation. And to me, this is the one that we have to work on for our entire lives because it is just so complex to learn effective, helpful strategies to manage our feelings and to use them wisely on a regular basis. You know, For some reason, we have all, without getting our master's degrees or doctorates in psychology, become experts at suppression, repression, blaming, yelling, screaming, drinking too much alcohol, ignoring, wishful thinking, the list goes on. But when it comes time to using effective strategies like positive self-talk, reappraisal, two are the most research-based ones, for some reason we fail at it all the time. 
our default is that negative self-talk or the extra alcoholic beverage or not getting up to exercise. And so I think that most of our lives, in terms of building emotional intelligence, once we get the labeling and we feel we have the permission to express, is spent developing the strategies to regulate them, refining them, and then practicing them for a lifetime. So let me just summarize them. The first one is recognizing them. So you're identifying the emotion. Yeah. You're having it, understanding it, which is what's creating this, what's causing this, labeling it, which is inherently clear, expressing it. So being able to say, this is what I'm feeling and then regulating it. I want to start with recognizing. And so I'm a leader and you've already said that it's essential that we understand how people are feeling. Is our technology interfering, you know, our fast pace? Do we have to slow down and put our devices down in order to connect with people on a level that allow us to do this? Can you do it superficially or does it really need attention and a clear mindset that this is what you're trying to do? It needs intention. You know, here I'm the director of the Center for Emotional Intelligence and I'm like ready to blow up because I'm just running around all the time. You know, rarely do we take that moment to just take that breath and say, all right, how am I feeling about what just happened? Wow, feeling really overwhelmed by that meeting, or wow, I'm really stressed out about this thing that's happening, or really disappointed in that colleague. And then just attribute a label to that previous experience so that we can be present, for example, like I'm trying to be in this podcast. And it's hard because we're not trained to pause. We're trained to just go, 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 go. And I think for many people, transitions are the best place to do this because, you know, if you have children or in a relationship, you know, you're tired at the end of the day, you're hungry at the end of the day, you're overwhelmed from, and stressed from the work, and then you go Zoom, you run home, and you go open the door to your house, and you're overwhelmed. And then, boom, your spouse or your partner or whoever, or the kid, starts talking to you and says, are we going for dinner today? You're like, no, get away. And you don't realize that it's because you have not dealt with your feelings. So I can't say enough about the power of pausing, the power of just giving yourself the permission to take a breath and to just check in. It is enormously helpful. I love in your book, you told the story about, I may botch this, but my recollection is that you were describing your mom earlier, but I think what you were saying was it would have been great when you came home pissed off because you didn't pass your karate test and your mom couldn't understand it. And what you would have liked was for somebody to say, hey, why don't you go into your room and just kind of gather yourself a little bit and just kind of think about what you're feeling and then come out and let's talk about that. So it's sort of let you go process it before you process it with me. Am I remembering this correctly? Well, yeah, there's layers to that. So in relationships, right, especially between parents and kids, I came home from karate and I was like, I hate you. I'm never going to karate again. You made me do this. I'm a loser. You know, I went crazy. My <laughs> mother was activated by that. Who do you think you are talking to me that way? Get to your room. Like, wait till your father gets home. Wow. Can't wait for daddy to get home, right? You know, hear him stomp up the stairs. If I have to tell you one more time to talk to you, if you don't stop talking to your mother that way, I mean, you know, it yeah. was crazy. Everything's in motion um, now. Mm -hmm. Now, what they didn't know was that I was feeling shame, right? That someone had basically made fun of me for failing the test and threatened to beat me up the next day on the way to school. But because the adults who were raising me didn't have the ability to pause and breathe and not respond to my behavior. So one of the things that's critically important about this work is that behavior does not equal feeling. 
I was yelling, screaming, I hate you. But that did not mean that I was angry. It just looked like it was anger. The only way to know how someone is feeling is by helping them to deactivate and by asking questions in a welcoming way that gets them to tell you what happened, the story, so that you, whether it's a parent, child, a couple, a workplace, can really pinpoint the feeling. So we have, <laughs> I have to choose my words here, but I'm just going to call it out. I mean, this is hard for men, right? Generally. And it may be hard for people of all sexes. It's just the idea that uh-huh. connecting with your feelings is not something that men tend to be skilled at because we weren't really taught it. We were in many respects taught not to feel, as you said earlier. And so if it's so important that we not only understand our own feelings and how that is influencing us in our thoughts and our behavior, how do we self-identify, not just label, but really feel into other people too, so that we understand how they're feeling, so that it's not just two or three words of they're happy, they're unhappy, binary, angry, not angry kind of a thing. How do we really get into sensing where people are so that we can give people what they need in the moment? So I think it's using the skills of ruler, meaning that you know the R is not about being accurate, right? You're not going to be perfect at identifying people's emotions because we are trained to mask our feelings and and yell and scream when we're feeling anxious, but we're actually angry or whatever it might be. We're trained at doing weird things to express ourselves that don't necessarily correlate with our feelings or our true feelings that we might see from judgments. So I think the first is to just acknowledge, all right, wait a minute, seems like he's in the red today. If the person is highly activated, you've got to figure out how to deactivate them because the brain will not process the questions when it's activated. So let's take a walk. Let's go for a cup of coffee. Why don't you take a few minutes to gather yourself? You want a glass of water, do a little breathing, just so people can deactivate. And once that happens, then you're just saying, hey, tell me what's going on. And for me, you know, one of my most uncomfortable experiences was that I was bullied on the bus ride going home from school or home from work or class school. And it was grotesque things. Like there was a kid who used to spit on me. It was, it was horrific what I went through as a kid. But I felt such shame about it that I'm not going to tell anybody. Like my father wanted me to be a tough guy, right? So how could a boy allow another kid to spit on him and then share that with his father who's telling him to be a tough guy? Like nothing's working there. So it's the adult's responsibility when it comes to parent-kid to create the setting, to create the context for true, authentic experiences. The only way that's going to happen is if the adult is honest and authentic themselves. And by the way, that happens in the workplace too. I'm a man who obviously runs a center, and I'm very authentic with my staff. You know, I say, you know, I'm really worried about this grant. I think you know, we're going to be okay, but we have work to do. Or I'm really disappointed in the way that training went because you know I had higher expectations. I thought we could have been on our game better. They've got to see me as someone who is real. They've got to see me as someone who is not just superficial. I think that's such a big part of it is just getting over the fact that we have to suppress and moving toward a society where the expression of all emotions is just normal. I want to call out the elephant in the ether <laughs> and reemphasize that there's a lot of cynicism out there around going deeper into feelings and emotions in the workplace, especially as a leader. Uh-huh. I will say in the context of the work that I do, that whenever I mention the word heart, 
it has this charge from people. Uh-huh. It's like, this is soft and weak. And obviously, if you're saying this, you don't get business, you don't get management. I mean, we don't go there. And so I'm just going to reminisce on something that you said in your book that made me laugh out loud. You said that you were talking to a school district superintendent and telling him that this is what we're teaching. We're teaching all these positive emotions and negative emotions. And he goes, I'm cool with you teaching positive emotions, but if you're going to get into the touchy-feely stuff, you're going to turn these kids into homosexuals. And I just thought, what a leap, you know, what a ridiculous, absurd leap, you know, that this is what we're afraid of. And so... Talk to the cynicism. Well, I, I mean, the cynicism that I've received in my career, I could write a book just about that. I had a professor at my own university almost rip me to shreds. You know, I gave a talk at the medical school, and this one veteran professor stood up and he goes, what happened to Yale? We produced Nobel laureates, not nice people. <laughs> and I was like, really? And then, I mean, I, I can handle myself now. And then I said, does anybody else have a different perspective? And another professor sends up, you know what, Mark? You know what I've learned? Sometimes you have to be an asshole because then people just shut up and you can tell them what to do. And I was like, are you kidding me? Now, what they don't realize, getting back to this example of like why it's important at work, the people who report to them hate their jobs. The people who report to them are not giving their best effort. So my response to this you know, professor was, you know something, buddy? We'd have a lot more noble arts if you cared about how people felt. You said that in the moment? I didn't say it. <laughs> All right. Too bad. That would have been I know. A- I fantasized about it on my ride home. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was my, role- that was my you know, fantasy role play on my ride home. <laughs> but truthfully, that's the case. Emotions always have a seat at the table. They always do. Every meeting. You can't deny the fact that people have feelings. And so let's just not make it weird. Let's just say, yes, we have feelings. Now, going back to your point in the workplace, certainly you have to know your audience. So you're not going to be like, let's all hold our hands and let's touch our hearts and let's take a breath and let's be compassionate and look our neighbors in the eye. I mean, that's not going to work in a Charles Schwab, right? You've got to know how to reach people. And I think that's a big part of being emotionally intelligent, right? Is knowing how do I present the science of emotion to garner the buy-in from my audience? And there are strategies for that too. So go into that because we've gotten to a place where we've kind of said, you know, there's still a tremendous amount of cynicism, even in your own university. It's like, what's become of Yale, (laughs) you know? And I used to be like a really successful leader at a very senior level in an organization that people admired me and said, that guy's like a really great manager. Uh Then I went away and I wrote my book and the book came out and the reaction was from a lot of these people because they never knew what I was doing. They were like, oh, like, what happened to him? <laughs> like, did he have a religious experience or a spiritual breakdown? They didn't understand that this is how I've been managing people my whole life, you know, and that you could actually understand that by cultivating an appreciation for how people were feeling and that feelings and emotions are driving their behavior, that if you can give them the experiences that they need, the positive emotions that we know drive engagement and loyalty and productivity, then you're going to get the best out of people. So tell us some of the ways you've learned to do that. Like, how do you keep your people feeling great about working for you and doing the work that they're doing? 
Well, you'd have to ask them that. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm like the best at it either. It's a work in progress because life is tough and sometimes we have grants that come in, sometimes we don't. Sometimes I'm present, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes my stress levels get in the way of me being helpful. But I think it's just acknowledging that, like just making it real, like letting people know, like I'm not in a great place today and it's not about you. It's just that I've got shit going on. I got to deal with it. All of a sudden, they're like, want to be helpful to you as opposed to think you're a jerk. One of our tools that I write about in my book is this idea of an emotional intelligence charter, which is a simple thing. It's just asking the people on your team, like, how do you want to feel when you're at work? And then just doing simple little exercises each day to help people feel that way more frequently. It's that simple. But if you don't ask the question and you don't know what people are hoping to feel more frequently, then it's hard to know how to change your behavior. Mark, I think, you know, we have a special segment on the podcast that we call the heartbeat round. So right now, I'd like to take a quick break from our conversation and ask you a series of more personal questions. I'm hoping you'll answer quickly and instinctively in a heartbeat, in other words. So you game for this? I'm ready to go. (laughs) Okay. All right. How are you feeling today is my first question. Yeah, well, you know, that's a tricky one. I'm feeling overwhelmed, tired, relieved, and excited and sleepy. <laughs> All right. Very well defined. It's uh, 8.45 East Coast time, so uh, you deserve to have all of that. One piece of advice you have for all parents listening in. Be the role model. Don't ask your kids to do something that you cannot demonstrate yourself. A book that profoundly changed your life. Actually, it was the very first book on emotional intelligence because that's when I learned about the scientists where I then studied emotional intelligence. Was this Daniel Goldman's book or another book? Yes, it was his book. Okay. The trait or behavior that derails the most leadership careers? I'm going to say emotion dysregulation. Depression is now the leading cause of disability worldwide, as you mentioned a minute ago. One way we can reverse it. I think, you know, I'm going to be using the title of my book. We have to give people the permission to feel. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? I'm pretty much a New York Times person. Lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life? I'm going to go back to how I regulate emotions effectively. Your synonym for the word heart. Feeling. Favorite musician. This is going to be a funny one, but I like blues and I like gospel. It's Patti LaBelle. Okay. The quality you most admire in other people. Integrity. The cultural value every organization should have. Openness. One subject you believe most of us would be wise to bone up on. History. World leader of any era you most admire. I'm going to say Nelson Mandela. Skill improvement you're working on right now. I am working on being consistent with my exercise. And something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Go up in a hot air balloon. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Why not? All right. right. Just confirming. I say that because I think that we all live in the weeds. And I use the metaphor of being in a hot air balloon all the time to just like gain perspective. Terrific. Well, wonderful. That's a great question to end it with. So thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. A couple of years ago, you surveyed 5,000 teachers and you found that they spend 70% of their work feeling frustrated, overwhelmed, stressed. And so when I read this, I was like, wait a minute, you could survey just about anybody in any occupation and get similar results. That's my theory. So talk about the effect that negative emotions and positive emotions have on people. So when you say, you know, how do you want to feel? But if you ignore that and you just allow people to marinate in negative emotions all the time and you're red and blue on your chart, uh-huh. then what does that do to behavior? 
And then what happens when people are in the green and the yellow? which is the more positive and low energy, high energy, but very positive emotions. So I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that work is going to be about all emotions. So, for example, there are times when I'm really stressed out about preparing something for a group. There are times when things don't go as I expected and I'm in the blue. There are days that I feel like I've got the world in a string. And there are days where I'm just like, oh, I'm taking a break today. And I'm just going to do some coffee shop writing and be in that green. So life and work is about acknowledging the fact that all emotions are going to happen. I think what we want people to reflect on is the amount of time they're feeling each of the different quadrants on the mood meter each day at work. So as we say, emotions are information, they're data. They're telling us, are things going well for us or not going well? You know, spending 30% of the day in the red and the blue is normal, right? You're going to be stressed out a little bit. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to get overwhelmed for a minute. Not a problem. Fabulous. It's when it's 40%, 50%, 60%, 70%. That's a signal that something is not going right, and you've got to get the support you need, or you've got to learn how to regulate it better. So our model is a little bit different. It's not about getting rid of the negative emotions and only feeling the positive ones. It's about having a greater balance between those positive emotions and the negative ones. But you couldn't do that anyway. I mean, work is work. Work is messy and difficult and stressful. And so it's when there's no positive emotions as an antidote to all that, that people get burnt out and unhappy. 100%, for sure. So I'll set it up this way. You're the principal of a school. Let's just call it K through eight. And you've got, you know, 25, 30 different teachers and you do a study and you find out that 70% of your teachers who are impacting the children of your community and are the manifestation of everything you're supposed to be doing as the principal, 70% of their day, they're feeling frustrated, overwhelmed and stressed out. So what would you do? What strategies would you implement? in order to turn that around and not just turn it around like instantaneously or, you know, just to get it back up to positive, but to sustain it that way, to create an environment where it was back in the 30s or 20s instead of the 70s. There's just so many layers here. I'll just give you one example. So in my research with educators, I found the number one emotion was frustration. They're just frustrated. A lot of it comes from initiative fatigue. They're like another program, another training, another literacy program, another math program. I mean, think about a teacher who's been in the profession for 10, 20 years, like how many different programs they've been trained in. They have to change it now because this one's going to improve test scores. Like, that's ridiculous. You know, I always joke, like, I went to a pretty mediocre school in New Jersey, and whatever math curriculum they used or whatever literacy curriculum they used, it was good enough. You know, the goal should be to get me to be a lover of reading, not implementing another whole thing. I only say this because so much of the feelings of our nation's educators and employees and companies comes from how management manages and how leaders lead. And it's like evaluating the practices. Some schools I work when they have no breaks between classes. I'm like, how does anybody go to the bathroom? <laughs> you know, it's like ridiculous. So I think that we can't just think about self-regulation, because that's what we like in America. It's like, deal with your stress, get over it, toughen up, go to yoga, take a breath. We have to think about structural things that are 
creating these negative emotions in addition to the individual things. I don't want to pin this down because I know you can anyway, but just generally, is there a, you know, there was the Lozada ratio, I think I remember that I think was disproved, but somehow there was science at some point that suggested that a ratio of X to one would be more ideal in terms of sustaining people's engagement. So three to one, four to one, five to one. If you find that, you're going to have people that are engaged at work. Mm -hmm. If it's one to one, then people are going to be unhappy. Do you have a general sense without pinning down a number, a manager should be hoping his or her people would fall? I would say if using our mood meter, it's like 70% of the day, pleasant emotions, 30% unpleasant emotions. Like that's a nice ratio. Unfortunately, what the data shows is that it's the opposite. Our high school kids are reporting being tired and bored and stressed 70 to 5% of the time. Our teachers are frustrated, overwhelmed, stressed 80% of the time. And our national study of 15,000 people in the workplace say they're feeling negative emotions at least 60% of the time. So we need to figure out how to switch it. Boil down the solution then. I think the number one solution is leadership. And we've shown that in our research. The emotional intelligence skills of that leader are oftentimes driving how people feel at work. I mean, think about it. Have you ever worked with someone who is really difficult? My whole career, yeah. Oh, seriously, (laughs) one after another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's like when you wake up in the morning, do you think to yourself, I cannot wait to go into a meeting with this person? Are you thinking to yourself, Never. Exactly. So... And then have you ever worked with someone who is skilled in this space, who really you know, has those skills of knowing really what you're feeling and creating a safe space and good listening skills and knows how to manage when they're stressed out and doesn't act out and blame and scream? It's just like, yes, 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 I want to work with this person because you don't have to walk in eggshells. You don't have to be monitoring everything you're saying. So the number one factor that I think that we have to focus on is making sure that people who are leading and managing our teams have skills of emotional intelligence. And of course, there are other things like salary is a critical factor and time off for paternity or maternity leave. There's many factors. But on a day-to-day basis, I'm going to argue that it's the skills of our leaders. So you look at the like worldwide engagement is in America, it's just 33% and outside of America, it's pitiful. And then you've got these stats of teachers. What would you say at this point in time, why this is the moment where we need to change this? I think if you look at the data around the anxiety and stress levels of our nation's youth and adults, if you look at the data on bullying in our schools and workplaces, if you look at the data on disengagement, and burnout. You have to say to yourself, we've got to do something about this. And I just think that we have gotten to a place where the suppression and the negation of feeling has taken us, you know, I'm saying this in a convoluted way, but my point is that the suppression and negation of emotion has gotten us to where we are today. And I don't think we want to continue to be in a place where depression is a leading cause of disability where 25 to 30% of our nation has an anxiety disorder. I think we want to be in a place where people have purpose and passion in life, where people have great relationships, where people have a sense of well-being, and where people have the opportunities to achieve success. You optimistic that this is the moment? I call myself like that. I have this weird term. I'm like a negative chronic optimist. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm pessimistic, but deep inside, I'm just endlessly hopeful. 
because truthfully, there's never been more interest in our center's work than there is today. I think people are recognizing that success in life is not just about getting, you know, honors courses and straight A's in school or a high salary. I work with a lot of people who are very wealthy. And the truth is, research shows that, you know, you're not that much happier, yep. if uh, happy at all. I think that we really are at a point in time where people are going to take seriously social-emotional education in schools and the role of social-emotional skills in the workplace. Thank you. Yeah. Before I let you go, I read your book. and I had the questions that I really wanted to ask, but I always build in a little safety net by asking my guests to punctuate the podcast with some final thoughts. So as you think about applying your work on feelings and emotions, emotional intelligence to management and leadership and to workplaces in general, any parting words or guidance you'd like our audience to ponder after we go? It's ask yourself, am I the role model? Am I demonstrating that I have the skills of emotional intelligence? Am I demonstrating that I am highly self-aware of how I'm feeling and how I'm behaving? And am I demonstrating that I have the skills to manage the full range of emotions effectively to support my team? That's my advice. Thank you. On behalf of my listening audience, Mark, I want to thank you again for joining me on the podcast. This has been a true delight. And congratulations on your new book. It's already doing phenomenally. I hope to see it get to number one. I appreciate that. I hereby give everyone the permission to feel. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Mark. Thank you. sign off, I have a quick story to share that profoundly validates that the heart is indeed a feeling-sensing organ. And it comes from Dr. Sandeep Jauhar, author of the book called The Heart History. And you may be familiar because he was very recently on the TED stage. Here's the story. In 1980, researchers were studying the effects of a high cholesterol diet on rabbits. And they found it confusing when some rabbits developed much more cardiovascular disease than others, even though they all had the same diet, environment, and genetic makeup. So on a hunch, the researchers divided the rabbits into two groups. Both groups continued to be fed the high cholesterol diet, but the first group was allowed to run free outside of their cages, and they were held, petted, talked to, and played with. The second group remained in their cages and were generally left alone. After one year, researchers found that the rabbits who received constant love and care had 60% less aortic disease. The conclusion from all of this, says Dr. Jahar, is that we, quote, can no longer treat the heart as if it were just a machine. We must pay more attention to the importance of emotions on the health and well-being of human hearts, not to mention human behavior overall. As always, I want to thank my wonderful team of supporters, Mr. Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Gary Finnessy, my webmaster, Randy Yant, and my producer and editor, Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you very much for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.